Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the founding members and namesake of the legendary funk and soul group Cool in the Gang, Robert Cool Bell. With hits like Summer Madness, Ladies' Night, Jungle Boogie, and Celebration, Cool and the Gang earned 25 top 10 R&B hits and 9 top 10 pop hits, in addition to selling more than 70 million albums worldwide. As an original member of the iconic funk band, Cool contributed vocals, played bass, and co-wrote many of their all-time biggest tracks. Cool and the Gang's legacy endures, with their songs being sampled by A Tribe Called Quest, the Beastie Boys, N.W.A., Anderson Pack, Public Enemy, The Notorious B.I.G., and many more. In 2015, their number one mega-hit, Celebration, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. In 2018, Cool was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, an honor that was added to his already impressive list of achievements with the band, which includes two Grammy Awards, seven American Music Awards, a MOBO Award, and Soul Train's Legend Award. One of Cool's original bass guitars is currently on display at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I spoke with Cool back in March of this year, a few months before the passing of Cool and the Gang sax player and fellow founding member Dennis D.T. Thomas. Here now is our interview with Robert Cool Bell. everybody. Welcome to another edition of Rock and Roll High School. I am absolutely thrilled today to be hosting one of the architects of funk, soul, R&B, pop. Please welcome from O-Town, Robert Cool Bell. Hi, Cool. Hey, P. How you doing, man? I'm good. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Really appreciate it. You know, in doing a bunch of research, getting ready for today's interview, I thought that we really couldn't start today's conversation without kicking it off talking about your brother, Khalees, who died a few months ago in September, but who was obviously such an important person in your life and such an integral part of Cool in the Gang. Yes, he's definitely going to be missed. Khalees is one of the major writers for Cool in the Gang over the years. He was definitely dealing with the horn side of a lot of our music, Jungle Boogie, Monkey Stuff, Open Sesame, and it goes on and on. And yep. he came up with the idea of celebration. Yep. Now, he had, you know, like when I said the idea, he had the concept, make it very quickly. We had just won two American Music Awards for Ladies' Night. And at the end of Ladies' Night, this is your night, come on, let's all celebrate. And he said, hey, that's another song. Khalees was always finding a song within a song, right? Absolutely. The other one was Summer Madness. Spike Micken wrote Summer Madness, and at the end of Summer Madness, uh, there was a vamp there. And Khalees had just got this 20, ARP 2600 synthesizer. He was in the studio to about 5 in the morning, and he said, there's another song there. So he took a solo over the vamp of You Don't Have to Change. When we came into the studio the next day, he said, guys, listen to this. Well, that sounds great. So what are we going to call it? Let's call it Summer Madness because it was in the summertime. And that became, as you know, big record, sampled by Will Smith and many, many others. There's so much to talk about that we're going to get to all of it. But I do want to start again talking about your brother. After your brother passed away, I read an article in Rolling Stone magazine where Mark Ronson was quoted by saying that measuring Cool in the Gang's influence is like asking what the influence of the Beatles was to pop music or to Shakespeare in writing. Mark Ronson also says the grooves 
were amazing. There was a sophistication in the arrangement, but the recordings were raw. They didn't sound expensive in the way that the Stax or Atlantic recordings might have sounded. There was a dirtiness to them. There was no polish. There was grit. There was East Coast grit. So when someone like Mark Ronson is paying tribute to you, your brother, and the music of Cool and the Gang, I thought that that was a, a great place to start today's conversation. We thank uh, Mark Ronson for that, you know. Yeah, of course. You know, let's talk about some accolades that the group has had since its beginning. Two Grammy Awards, seven American Music Awards, 25 top 10 R&B hits, nine top 10 pop hits, 31 golden platinum albums, recipients of the NARM Chairman's Award for Lifetime Achievement in Record Sales, mm-hmm. and so many others, including the MOBO Award for Outstanding Achievement, the Soul Train Legend Award, the Marion Anderson Award, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and a place that is near and dear to my heart because I'm on the board of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, you, your brother, and some of your other band members were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2018. 23 studio albums, 70 singles, seven and a half million, four and a half million albums and singles respectively sold worldwide, 70 million albums sold for Cool and the Gang. Are you talking about me? <laughs> there you go, right? So I also read, I also read that Cool and the Gang has performed continuously longer yeah. than any other R&B group in history. Is that true? Well, I tell you what, we were doing over 100 shows a year before the pandemic. Yeah, we toured quite a bit. We toured all over the world, from Europe to Asia to Africa. Uh, we were behind Berlin Wall before it came down. We might have wow. Put a crack in there, some. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, possibly. Are you going to go back on the road once the pandemic is over? Well, Pete, you and I, I think I have to. <laughs> I have not been home in 50 years for a year. March has been a year since we got off that ship. Pandemic hit. You know, we we're doing the 80s rock cruise. Right. A lot of groups couldn't show up. In excess, I think was in Italy and they couldn't show up and they called us in to do the cruise. It was supposed to be only three days. And then some of the other groups couldn't make it and they asked us to stay for the rest of the week. So we stayed on that ship for one week. And then when we got off in Miami, actually for a lot of them, that's when it hit. And I was stuck right down here in the OTC. I couldn't get no further than here. I was for eight months. <laughs> so how many original members are still with you in the band, Cole? Well, now we only have three. After the, uh, I lost my brother, George Brown, Dennis Thomas, and myself. Amazing. I, I think one of the things that I didn't realize before doing my homework for today's class was that I've always associated Cool and the Gang with Jersey, but I didn't realize that you and your brother grew up originally in Youngstown, Ohio. Yes, sir. We didn't stay there that long, though, but (laughs) we were born in Youngstown, Ohio. We left Youngstown, Ohio in 1960. We came to Jersey City, and we met the members of the band. We had several different names, the Five Sounds, of course, all the other names that we had, the Jazzy Axe, Soul Town Band, Cool in the Flames, and then finally Cool in the Gang. Well, I want to back up a second and go back to Youngstown, Ohio, because there is something very, very, very entertaining that I found while getting ready for today's interview, Cole. I found Cool TV, which I didn't know existed. And there are some amazing vignettes that are animated about the history of the band. And it starts in the beginning in Youngstown, Ohio, and Cool TV talks about how when you were growing up, beds were two buckets and a board, and you guys were eating Army rations from the U.S. Army. Yeah, Youngstown, Ohio, you know, my brother and I and our family. And is it true that John F. Kennedy, the president, read a letter that your mother wrote to him for help on national TV? Yeah, exactly. That's a, my brother, um, Khalees Ronald. That's uh, he actually saw the show, you know. Well, he he would say that a lot in a lot of his interviews. But yeah, and he drew a picture that President Kennedy held up while reading your mother's letter. 
Yes, sir. Like I said, that was my brother's story. So that was and probably I, the be- <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the beginning of Cool and the Gang uh, working its way into the conscience of America, right? Right there. It's like the Beverly Hill Village. Yeah, Everything we own was in the back of a Bel Air coming to Jersey City. Well, talk about Jersey City. I mean, it's not like things were a lot better in Jersey City. There were condemned buildings with rats. It was pretty bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. When we uh, moved to Jersey City, my mother kind of uh, split us up just a little bit because she had, you know, her sisters was in uh, New York, in Long Island. And while she was looking for a job, we stayed with our relatives and eventually we all came to uh, Jersey City once my mother got a job and found an apartment. Now, that particular apartment, the one also couldn't get away from the rats. I wonder what that was all about. (laughs) But that house had rats too, you know. But it was all, all part of growing up, man. I mean, um, my father, who was top five boxer, Bobby Bell, he, as they say, Papa was a rolling stone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't catch up with him. Your dad was a serious jazz lover, right? And and Thelonious oh, yeah. Monk was a friend of his and played a, an important part in your life too, right? Yeah, Thelonious Monk became my godfather. There was this apartment building on, I think, 65th Street in Amsterdam. There was a gym over there. My father just uh, trained at that gym. So uh, Thelonious Monk, even Miles Davis used to come over to the gym because, you know, Miles wanted to be a boxer, too, for for a minute. And he wanted to get in the ring with my father. And my father said, well, Miles, I don't think you want to do that. You know, (laughs) uh, we just spar. If I hit you the wrong way, you know, bust your lip might mess up your career. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that was part of the history. So when you were growing up in Jersey City, then it seemed like your brother was more of the serious musician and you ended up hanging out with what you called some knuckleheads in Jersey City. Yeah, 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 Pete. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Who, Who were the A's, cool? Well, let me go back. Okay, we we moved to Youngstown, Ohio. We from Youngstown, Ohio, excuse me. The Jersey City. And so my mother sent me out to the store to get some Lucy bread. I don't know if you remember that. It was about 25 cents. And these two guys come up to me and say, hey, give me your money. I said, what? My money? He said, yeah, we want your money. So I gave him the quarter. <laughs> Went back to the house. My mother said, well, what happened to the bread? Well, my, these two guys came up to me and Give me, uh, give me uh, my quarter. So I said, well, hmm. Now, he's an old country boy. I said, I got to figure out the lay of the land here. So either they're going to be continue to take my money or I'm going to have to do something different. So I became a part of the first little gang. We weren't too bad. We were called the Imperial Lords. And it was about 30 or 40 of us. And I became the president of the Imperial Lords. OK, because my father was a boxer. So, I, you know, I knew my way around a little bit, a little small guy. But I knew how to, you know, uh, work my work my hands there. <laughs> so anyway, I became a part of the Imperial Lords. At the same time, my brother was pulling me, man, you need to leave those guys alone, man. And come on and uh, be a part of our first band, which was uh, the Jazzy Axe. Now, there was a guy, Spike Mickens, who played trumpet. And we used to go to this house and his brother played the guitar. And I learned how to play one song on one string. And we were at the Cafe Wa in New York. And my brother said, man, why don't you come up here and play that one song, you know, on that one string? Was, was that Coming Home Baby? <laughs> coming Home Baby. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. And that started my career. So it be, that, that beat uh, the Imperial Lords then, right? Playing, playing the one string. Mm-hmm. Of course. (laughs) Where'd the name Cool come from? Everybody had a nickname back then, right? That's right. That's right. And I decided that I wanted to get away from Tomango. And uh, there was this guy in the neighborhood who called himself Cool. And he spelled it with C. I said, hmm, I like that name. And what I did was I changed it and started spelling it with a K. (laughs) And that's how it became my, my nickname and my middle name. Now, I know that one day it's going to be cool in the game. You mentioned the name Tamango. Tamango is a name that you called yourself after a rebellious slave 
from a movie, right? When you were hanging out with the Imperial Lords, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Dorothy Dandridge yep. was on that movie. The movie was called Mango. And yeah, he was a fellow slave. I also like the episode of Cool TV where Khalees gets roughed up by the Hill Boys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I guess it tells the story. Because they were older adventurers, and we were A's, they called us the A's, we had these nice blue and gold sweaters. And Khalees said, man, I'd like to get one of those sweaters. So <laughs> we gave Khalees a sweater to be a part of. Went to the first party back in the day when they say, turnout, it's a turnout. And I think we were set up. <laughs> Yeah, we ran out of there, running back downtown. Khalees, I think they cut his sweater and chased him with a hatchet. And he said, that's it. I'm not hanging out anymore. I'm going back to listen to John Coltrane. And yep. He said, you could have this. So that's, that's what happened. Yeah. So the first band that you guys formed, was that the Jazzbirds? Yeah, actually. Yeah, I said, you've been doing your homework. Yep. Yeah, with the Jazzbirds before the Jazz Yaks. Right. So the Jazzbirds were more of a jazz group, right? Like inspired by Miles and Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard, right? Yeah, Ron Carter and all those guys, yeah. And then when did the Jazzbirds become the Jazzyacks? Well, a little after that, we did a talent show in New York at the Powell Theater. We won that night. You know, 13, 14 years old, these young kids playing jazz. Actually, jazz, uh, the Jazzyacks was also some of my high school buddies. And they had this club. It was about who knew what jazz artists. They knew Freddie Hubbard or John Coltrane. And they called themselves the Jazzy X Club. And then we became the Jazzy X, the band. And that's how that started. So from the Jazzy X, the Jazzy X became the New Dimensions. The New Dimensions became the Soul Town Band. And the Soul Town Band became Cool in the Flames. Is that right? That's it. Now, the Soul Town Band, now, there was an organization in uh, Jersey City called the Soul Town Review. And they were trying to be like the Motown Review. And we became the Soul Town Band. So it was about at least 10 acts. Like twice a month, we would have to back these guys up. And they were singing with the Motown hits. So, you know, we were playing songs by The Temptations and... Uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and et cetera, et cetera. And we was listening and playing James Brown. Anyway, when we left Soul Town, we uh, were working in a club, and one of the uh, master of ceremonies for Soul Town Review came up with this idea. And he had a big block of ice and had cool in it, and he had the flames on it, melting the ice. And he said, How do you like the name? He said, Well, we call us the Soul Town Man. Now we became cool in the flames. Hmm. And then when we met Gene Red, and he was our first manager and producer, he said, well, listen, we can't use James Brown's name, The Flames. We didn't want to have any problems with The Godfather. <laughs> so he came back. We thought a whole lot of crazy names to call ourselves. You know, we was young, 13, 14, 15 years old. He said, you know what? I'm going to call you guys Cooling Gang. And we said, okay. That was, Gene, that was Gene Red who said that. That was Gene Red, right. So it's it's a little bit of a tip of the cap to your days with the Imperial Lords, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Gene Red a little bit. What was his influence as a manager? I know he had worked with Quincy Jones a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah. well Gene Red was, like you said, he had worked with uh, Quincy Jones. And his father, Gene Red Sr., worked with James Brown for a minute, you know. He was his road manager, right? Yeah. Gene was a good, you know, writer. Uh, he envisioned... Uh, Cool in the gang of being like, for instance, Gene would ask us, What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> you know, you want to be a big business or you want to be in the music and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he used to take us to White Castle, these little White Castles, 50 cent or five dollars. I don't know what it was at that time, burgers. And he'll talk about that, about our, about our future. And Gene had an idea back then. He wanted to do a cartoon back then called Cool in the Game. And then after that, the Jackson 5, you know, they ended up doing their wow. cartoons and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Gene was like, to keep the music basic. I know you guys love jazz, you're the jazzy act, but he wanted to do an album, which was our very first album, 
you know, our very first record was Kuna Gang by Kuna Gang by right. Kuna Gang. And they thought it was a Spanish band because we had Kungas in there and we were talking on the record and that kind of a thing. Well, I think that would be a great opportunity to uh, hear a little music. Let's hear a little bit of the self-titled debut song from the 1969 album, Cool in the Gang. That was Cool and the Gang by Cool and the Gang. And Cool, you said that when people heard that on the radio, because of those horn licks, they thought it was a Spanish group. Yeah, and the bongos and everything that was in that track, yeah. So the band itself played for five years, toured for five years before you recorded your first album. You went up and down the East Coast. You played with... Richie Havens, Richard Pryor, like all up and down the East Coast scene, honing your sound. So by the time that you guys got in to the studio to make your debut album, you guys were all pros by then. Well, yeah, I mean, we played at the Cafe Wall a lot, the Village Gate, those, those spots over in New York, we learned from that. Plus playing that whole Soul Town thing and playing behind Motown groups, that all helped us. And we mixed R&B with the jazz and we had created our own sound, yeah, before we did our first record. I mean, if you listen to that first album and the first song that we just heard, Cool in the Gang, it definitely feels like there was inspiration taken from James Brown. Was that intentional or was that just part of who you guys were as musicians? That was a part of who we were as musicians. But uh, I mean, because we played all these different songs, we had to learn uh, uh, doing the whole Soul Town thing. And then we venture off into jazz thing. You know, my brother loved Don Coltrane and then Dennis Cannibal Adley, uh, Addison Ron Carter, George Philippe Joe Jones, Ricky West, Herbie Hancock, et cetera, et cetera. Yep, totally. Then you guys added a, a bit of social consciousness and message into your music from the 1971 album Live at the Sex Machine. Let's hear a little bit of who's going to take the weight. And there's a great story that I, I want you guys to tell as soon as we listen. Let's listen to a little bit of who's going to take the weight. Because I believe one day someone or something is going to want to judge who's creating all this corruption and death and pollution on earth. And he's going to want to know who's going to take the weight. And that's Dennis there, right? With the spoken word intro? Yes, yeah, DT, yeah. And I love the story that I read about where the title of who's going to take the weight came from. Can you share it with us? We were rehearsing in Jersey City, putting the little show together, you know, because we had been having some territorial hits, you know, a funky man, funky granny. So we, we had that little street following. And we we're trying to put something together for a show. And there, there was this guy who was trying to show us some choreography. Yeah, because we were coming up from the jazz thing and we we're just like standing up and playing and, you know, he said, well, you know, we got to put a little, little spark in what you're doing in terms of the show. So we're down here in this basement where he chose, and we're rehearsing. And then all of a sudden, two detectives come downstairs. I said, oh, how you guys doing? Oh, we got Mr. Jenkins here. Hmm. He said, oh, what is this over here in the corner? He said, well, you know what's in the corner? So at that time, with these small bags of cocaine and what they called a doogee at the time. <laughs> and we said, well, we don't know nothing about that. He said, well, it's here and it's in the basement. Somebody's going to take the weight for this. <laughs> he said, I can't believe this, we said. They locked it. We all went out 
in a paddy wagon on the front cover of the Jersey Journal paper, and we got locked up for one night, and we missed the gig. And that was the whole story about who's going to take the wave. So out of a very scary experience, you guys got a great song out of it. Yeah. We had some pretty good people around us, you know. They came over the next day, spoke to the judge, made some moves, and we got out the next day. I want to fast forward a little bit to the next album. Obviously, we haven't spoken about Delight Records yet. What was their role in all of this? Gene Red had a relationship with Delight, and he took you guys over there to sign the band in 1969, right? Right. We signed with Gene Red's company first. It was called Red Coach Records, or Red Coach Productions, actually. So we signed with Gene, and then Gene made a deal with Delight Records. Got it. So as you guys started having some success on the charts and people started hearing the name more and associating the great music with the name Cone the Gang, was there pressure to make more commercial music? I read a great story about Gene Red coming to you guys and saying, you know what you guys should do is you should do Soul Makosa. And you said, no, we're not going to do Soul Makosa. We're going to do our own music. Well, that was a little bit after Gene Red, but the producer of Soul Makosa has spoke to Delight Records, and Delight Records uh, came to us and said, hey, you guys been having territorial hits, you know, Philadelphia, Connecticut, Washington, D.C. You need to talk to this producer. Uh, I think his last name was something Douglas, but anyway, he uh, produced the record, and we met with him, and we said, no, we're not feeling this guy. So we went into a studio downtown in a village called Baggies. And we went in there around 8 o'clock in the morning. And we stayed in that studio till midnight. When we came out of that rehearsal studio that was, we had created Funky Stuff, Jungle Boogie, and also Hollywood Swinging. All from the same one-day session. That's insane. Well, I backed it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was either do that or cover Soul Makosa, right? Yeah, right. All three of those songs have become, you know, just part of the cultural fabric of music of the last 50 plus years. You hear these riffs and you immediately, you know, one, they put a smile on your face, but two, they're immediately identified with Cool and the Gang. And earlier you mentioned that your brother, created hooks from these horn licks so that if you listen to Hollywood swinging, that horn lick is so distinct. Did that start the song first and then the lyrics came after that? It was a group. A lot of our stuff, we started, you know, grooving first. You know, the, the drummer and the bass myself, George and myself, and started building the song on that. But let's go back to funky stuff. The guitar part that Charles, I should say, the late Charles Smith played was wicked. I said, how's he doing that? Even Prince said that was the first song that he learned how to play guitar and listening to Wow. That. Well, with that type of influence, if Charles's guitar is influencing Prince, we got to hear a little bit of funky stuff which was actually your first top five R&B hit, your first top 40 pop hit. Let's hear a little bit of funky stuff. Playing the whistle, cool. Uh, I forgot who. I think it was Ricky Westbrook. We used to do crazy stuff, man. The studio Blake whistles. The actual bass drum of funky stuff is also a marching band drum. And we played it over the bass drum. That's when you get that walk off, walk off. You got that sound. We were throwing all kind of weird stuff out there. No, it sounds like you guys are having a party in the studio with all the talking and the whistling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Funky stuff went on to be number one on the Billboard charts. And I don't know if it was Record World and Castbox, but at least about seven to eight weeks, funky stuff. Yeah, it's a big one. 
You know, yeah. what, what's funny is that all of the songs that you guys created back then in the late 60s and 70s in this one day session where Funky Stuff, Jungle Boogie, Hollywood Swinging, all coming from the same day. Think of how many records have been created based on that one day's worth of work. So when I hear the beginning of Funky Stuff, the first thing that I think of is the Beastie Boys, Hold It Now, Hit It, from their first album, which was such a massive, successful album, that the Cool in the Gang sound ends up influencing artists of another generation and ends up influencing their audience so that the legacy of the music keeps going further and further. I'd love to hear a little bit of the intro of Hold It Now, Hit It by the Beastie Boys. Hold it now, hold it now. Amazing. And then talk about Hollywood swinging. Nile Rogers was quoted that saying Good Times from Chic was totally inspired by Hollywood swinging. Yeah. And Nile Rogers' cousin was uh, Spike Mickens. Oh, cool in the game. I did not know that. Yeah, they were family members. Now, Hollywood swinging, again, that same long day, <laughs> we're in there grooving. And then Ricky West came up with this idea. I think Ricky maybe did. First, we were calling it, hey, hey, Jayco. We said, Jayco? That ain't working. <laughs> so we finally came up with, hey, 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 what you got to say? Hollywood swinging. Now, Frankie Crocker, back in the day, they used to call Frankie Crocker the Hollywood Frankie Crocker. And he helped break that record. Of course. Cause was... <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they called Frankie Crocker a lot of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Frankie Crocker. No, he also broke Ladies Night, too. In New York. Let's talk about the third song that was created in that one fateful day in, in Manhattan. Let's talk about Jungle Boogie. And we talked about your songs creating others of your songs. We talked about Summer Madness. But without Jungle Boogie, would there have been Get Down On It? Well, actually, Get Down On It was um, part of a, in the hooks of Jungle Boogie. And my brother wrote Jungle Boogie because he started off with a haunt line. I would love to play a little bit of that, just how recognizable Jungle Boogie is. Let's listen to a little of Jungle Boogie. Jungle Boogie, and we talked about the get down, get down chant. It's amazing. Like when you guys were writing Get Down on it, was somebody's idea like, hey, remember what we did with Jungle Boogie? Let's build on that. Or was it more natural than that? Well, it was both. You know, again, my brother was the main writer also for Get Down on it. So we kind of like mixed the two together. Now, my brother tells me, you know, he came up with that because there was a young man named Bayan said, have you ever listened to Bob Marley? My brother said, Bob Marley? He said, um, no, I heard of Bob Marley. So my brother said that in listening to Bob Marley, he came up with the line, we'll get down on it. And I was trying to connect the two, because Bob Marley, you know, Bob Marley. But I guess when uh, he came up with the idea of the baseline of uh, get down on it, and if you if you change the guitar and put it there, then get down on it, then you can hear maybe 
a bit of influence about Molly with my brother. Oh, what you gonna do? You wanna get down? Tell me. Oh, what you gonna do? Do you wanna get down? Oh, what you gonna do? You wanna get down? Oh, what you gonna do? You wanna get down? Tell me. So it's the influence of Bob Marley and it's the influence of Jungle Boogie at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I mean, talking about the samples that the entire, you know, next generation of hip hop artists who have sampled the music of Cool and the Gang, according to a website called whosampled.com, Cool and the Gang are the number two most sampled artist after James Brown. Like over 2,000 times your songs have been sampled. Wow, yeah. How did that make you feel when you heard your music reinterpreted from all these hip-hop records? We felt very good about that. Before they had sample rights, when they made the decision in Washington, D.C. about sampling, our music was being sampled all over the place, and we couldn't really do that much about it. If I'm not mistaken, I was told, I might be wrong about that, that when Joe Biden was in D.C., he was one of the ones who moved to clear uh, to come up with the sampling rights that you cannot sample a song unless you got the okay from the record company. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's that's a good thing. Yeah. That was a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> we were getting paid. <laughs> you know, in listening back to your catalog, a lot of things came to mind, like going back a little bit, listening to Funky Man. I had never really listened to it in the context of hearing it and then thinking about Funky Worm. And, you know, Funky Man came first. Ohio Players' Funky Worm came later. And Jimmy Castor's Traglodyte came later, too. Did it feel to you guys like these guys were biting off what you were doing? Or was it not that type of competition? Well, it wasn't that type of competition. But we, when we heard it, we knew that, hey, man. You know, <laughs> that funky man, the funky word, yep. you know. And they happened to be from Ohio, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, my brother and I were born in Ohio. The rest of the band was in Jersey City, but yeah. So you gave him a pass. You gave him a, an Ohio pass. Oh, yeah. We worked together, too, later on in the years. But so many of the other bands that, you know, in listening, you listen and you think about, you hear Ohio players, you hear Commodores, you hear the Isley Brothers, you hear Earth, Wind & Fire. Did you end up working with all of those guys, touring, becoming friendly with? Yeah, we yeah, toured with all of them, Ohio players, Earth, Wind & Fire, Commodores, you know, even uh, P-Funk with George Clinton, the P-Funk mob, you know, <laughs> yep. all those guys. We talked earlier about Summer Madness, how, you know, Summer Madness was written off of a riff from another song. But what I also found interesting is that when you guys put out Spirit of the Boogie in 1975, which was another number one R&B record for you guys, the B-side of Spirit of the Boogie was Summer Madness. So even though the session for Summer Madness came from the album before it, so was that intentional or was that something, it was on Light of World's album, was that something that somebody thought that it made sense that there was a real reason to do that? Well, we didn't really know what was going to happen with that. Because back then, you know, we had 45, had A side, B side. I'm not sure who exactly said we should put some of matters on the B side, but we didn't know what type of effect that some of the madness was going to have. Because Spirit, you know, Jungle Boogie, Spirit of the Boogie, you know, that was a driving track, Spirit of the Boogie. And then TJ in Chicago happened to flip the record over and he played Summer Madness. And then he asked his audience, well, who is this? Call in. Oh, Herbie Hancock. Oh, Donald Byrd. Oh, they came up with all these different names. And, and when they found out it was us, they said, wow, that's cool, they got it.
And then when Summer Madness was used in the movie Rocky, a whole new audience heard the music. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember as a kid watching that movie and really noticing that song without even knowing who Cool in the Gang was. That song had a real visceral effect the way it was used in the film. Yeah. Well, you know, that part, Rocky was what, laying down on the couch and he was thinking about this big fight he's getting ready to have, <laughs> you know. And then you hear some of Madness playing behind uh, with part of the soundtrack. Yeah. Then that started a nice little relationship with Cool and the Gang in the movies, right? Yeah, yeah. We went on to one with John Travolta, a couple with him. Well, let's, let's, let's listen. You're talking about the track Open Sesame. I want to listen to a little bit of Open Sesame right now because Open Sesame was on the early side of disco before the genre got way commercial. But mm. in Open Sesame, just listen to that crazy horn lick. You know, what I love about listening chronologically to Cool the Gang's music is, you know, it's jazz, it's funk, it's disco, it's R&B, it's soul. It's all evolving so organically over the life of the band. Let's listen to a little bit of Open Sesame. love that horn lick. And then I went back and found on YouTube a clip of the couple dancing to Open Sesame from Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta looking from off the dance floor like he was a little concerned about how good they were dancing to your song. (laughs) What I love about the history of your music and the history of your group is that it was constantly evolving. So talk about your tour with the Jackson 5 and what the legendary concert promoter and and record man Dick Griffey told you guys about what he thought, in his opinion, the band needed. Well, we were out on tour with the Jackson 5. And of course, you know, uh, Dick Griffey was the promoter of that tour. And he came up to us and said, listen, you guys are doing great on the tour. He said, but I think you need a lead singer. And we said, well, lead singer? We thought about it, and then we said, well, you know, the Commodores had Lionel Richie, Oakland and Fire had Philip Bailey and Maurice White, and our music was very musical, and maybe it could open up the door for a lead vocalist. And that's when we decided to look for a lead singer. We were recording in New Jersey, the House of Music. Adia Dollar was there doing an album, and you had Frankie Valley was working there, and Meatloaf had recorded there. The owner of the studio said, well, I know a guy that I would like to recommend, you know, to come in and so audition for you guys. He had a group called the Philae of Soul over in Hackensack, and that was James J.T. Taylor. So he came over to the studio, and my brother said, okay. He started playing some chord changes, he said, sing this, sing that. He started playing some funkier tracks to sing with this against this. And they said, you know, you might sound a little bit like Nat King Cole. He said, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we didn't look for anyone else. We felt that this was So did all these things happen at the same yeah. time, Cole, at, at the House of Music, Diodato, J.T. Taylor? Everything was happening at the same time? Yeah, yeah. Diodalo was there, and then that's when Diodalo decided he wanted to be the producer. He had good credentials because he had just worked with Earth, Wind & Fire, so he knew something about working with funk bands. Yeah. Now, when Diodalo became the producer, my brother and some of the other guys, but maybe my brother, maybe Spike Rickett or whatever, oh, wow, we got Diodalo. We're going to sound even jazzy. <laughs> Diodalo called yeah, <laughs> but he had other ideas, right? The Adato had other ideas. Well, let me go back to Ladies Night. Ladies Night came about because I was hanging out, my wife and I hanging out, and at Studio 54 and Eugene, they would have a Ladies Night. So I went back to the band. You know what? I got a great idea for a song for our new album. I said, what? A ladies Night. 
And my brother said, wow, yeah, it's a legion night everywhere. Of course, I was hanging out in New York. And so that's when we got together and we recorded it, Ladies' Night. Now, after getting two American Music Awards on Ladies' Night, the latter part of the song was a, come on, let's all celebrate. celebrate. This is your night tonight. But I got another <laughs> idea. He said, what? He said, I got this track called it Celebration. And uh, said, okay, so we listened to it. And it had that kind of down-home groove to it. It wasn't very complicated song, but it had that feel to it. You know, it was almost like being in, in the South, in Birmingham, Alabama, or Montgomery, Alabama, with grandma and grandpa sitting on a porch in a rocking chair. Boy, bring me some more of that Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> it had that vibe to it. Then Earl Toon came with the Yahoo. Good Going back to the first album with Diodato and with J.T. Taylor, were those songs, Too Hot, Ladies Night, all those songs off the album, were they originally instrumentals before you guys decided to audition a singer? Well, well, yes and no. I mean, because we did a lot of instrumental songs. But one of the things that uh, Diodato said, that's, listen, you have a lead singer now, so you have to make room in your tracks for lead vocalists. Because our horns was always, you know, like yeah. it was like our yep. least singers, you know. So that's when we started. We started breaking our music down. Say, listen, you got to make room for the least singer. Like, so what was it like writing more traditionally arranged songs with verses, choruses, bridges, all with lyrics? Was was that something that JT got involved with as well? That Diodato got involved with, or was that just the core band? Yeah, well, the JT, Diodato, I mean, and then once we got into it, you know, the ideas just started to come. I mean, Too Hot was a, a true story of George Brown uh, growing up as a teenager. Wow. And he got Too Hot wow. with his girlfriend, and, uh, you know, they had a separation. Uh, Joanna was Charles Smith. He wanted to write <laughs> something about his mother. called Dear Ma. We're in the studio. That ain't working. So somebody, what was, come up with somebody's name, a girl's name, something like that. Yeah, just try Joanne. Joanna, I love you. You're the one for me. Love me. She's the one, the one for me. I read a great quote that before you did the Ladies' Night album, that you were doing an in-store at a record store, an in-store promotion, and there was a young girl in there, and nobody showed up. And she said, cool in the gang, y'all are old hack. And he said that he took offense to it, and he's like, you know what, let's make something commercial. And that led, you know, all of these things happening at the same time. That girl inspiring your brother, you know, Diodato coming in as the producer, J.T. Taylor coming in as the singer, and you aren't old hacks anymore. How about that? That's right. That's right. It's a part of the Cool in the Gang evolution, you know, and, and we kept uh, moving. I mean, like every 10 years, it was a, somewhat of a challenge for us. You know, of course, coming up, Daddy Axe, first record in 1969, Cool in the Gang. Went well, had big records. Things start to slow down. You know, they were burning records yep. in Chicago. Yeah. Disco sucked, dance music sucked, whatever, whatever, whatever. And all of a sudden, then, you know, well, you know, Dick Griffin said, hey, you need to get a lead singer. We do that. And then we move into the 80s, yep. you know, with the song Ladies Night. And then that's a good to, opportunity uh, for us to go back and listen to a little more music. Let's cue up a little bit of, of Ladies Night, the song that was inspired by Cool and his wife at Studio 54, a little of ladies' night. And it's only fitting that the song that you titled, the first thing you hear is your bass line. 
Yeah, actually, George Brown also had a lot to do with that and my brother, because uh, George came up with the music to Ladies' Night. Uh, I came yeah. up with the title. But the way that George tells the story, he was walking in New York. He was watching people walk. And they were walking. They're looking at the people in New York. And he said, he took from that, he came up with the idea of a baseline of people walking in the busy city of New York. It's amazing that, you know, that's what a group does. That's why, you know, a, a great group is the combination of all the members. You know, so it's your title. It's your brother's horn lines. You know, it's George's music bed. It's it's everybody coming together to speak as one voice. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. And so next we move to celebration. So you've already told the story about how you're at the American Music Awards, winning your American Music Award for Ladies Night. And, you know, come on all, let's all celebrate where your brother was like, hey, there's a song here. Let's listen to a little bit of Celebration. You know, I'm sure everybody asks you this, Cole. Do you ever get tired of hearing that song? Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> ask me that. No. <laughs> That's the ending song. We can't get away without playing Celebration, man. So. It is a great, a great record. record. So Celebration, the song itself, is in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Is that right? You know, yes. I mean, you just think about the legacy of the group. You know, you guys are part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture. And then something that I didn't know about, that yes. if you go to Jersey City today, the corner of Maple Street and Pacific Avenue is now cooling the gang way. That's true. We got a, we got a name on, the, on our corner. And I, that right in front of that building, that's where well, I told the story about, you know, we came from Youngstown, Ohio. Our mother split up and we stayed around the corner on Whitener Street. And then we finally moved on that corner on Pacific Avenue and Whitener Street was where that's amazing. Congratulations. It's also something I didn't know until recently was that Cool and the Gang were the only American act to be included on the holiday classic, Do They Know It's Christmas? Is that right? That's true. Yeah. We were touring. Do you remember the recording yeah, session I mean, for that? Did you we guys record in London? A little bit. Yeah, we were, we were touring. And at that time, it's now Universal Records, but at that time with Polygon Records. And Bob Geldof was uh, one of the big artists over there. And we just happened to be there. And he said, well, we're doing this song uh, from uh, Ethiopia, Starvation in Ethiopia. And would you guys like to join us? He said, yeah. I mean, we had a couple of days off. And, you know, we got up at about 7 o'clock in the morning. And everybody came to the studio and we put together. Do they know it's Christmas time again? It was a great And it's a song that you hear song. every Christmas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, for great cause, too. Of course, you know. Yeah, for sure. In 2012, Cool and the Gang toured with Van Halen. Was that weird? A lot of people thought that was weird. <laughs> so what happened was we were in London at the big rock festival they have every year. Yeah. Yeah, Glastonbury. Yeah, Glastonbury. And that week you had uh, Coldplay and uh, U2 and a lot of various groups. And we played uh, near the end of the week. From what I was told, that David Dubois had saw us on TV, the BBC. He called Eddie Van Halen and his brother, said, I got the perfect group that will open up, can open up for us for our reunion tour. I think it was, he was getting back with them. And they said, who? He said, uh, cool again. They said, what? Cool, what you been smoking, man? Cool again? He said, yes, cool in the game. They just rocked the Glastonbury Festival. He said, you guys don't remember back in the day we used to play Jungle Boogie and, and funky stuff in the club back in L.A.? Yeah. Y'all want me? I want cool in the game. <laughs> I didn't know too much about Van Halen. And he said that 60% of our audience 
a lady, a woman. He said, and you guys had the song Celebration in the 80s. We had jump. And he said, now, let's go out and have a party. And how was the tour? How were those audiences? Were they receptive to your music? They were great. So we only had 50 minutes. So we started off with Fresh, and uh, we went to uh, another track. And then we went into Misled, Tonight in Emergency. So it's had slightly a rock edge. So look, you can see the crowd, you know, the fans of Van Halen, just kind of, okay. When we hit ladies' night, the ladies in his audience got up and they started booging. And they said to the, the hardcore rocker that was sent to Van Halen, she said, you better get your butt up and get down on it. <laughs> I came here to the party. And that next song was Get Down On It. And then the last song was Celebration. After that, we had it to the point where the press would say that we rock in Van Halen. I said, no, don't say that. They might throw us <laughs> off the tour. <laughs> it was great. And Those then guys the following year, you toured with Kid Rock and ZZ Top. Yeah, yeah. Kid Rock, saw, he saw the show in Detroit area. And he said, man, I want them on my show. <laughs> I think... We could only do 10 shows because we had to go to Europe. Um, but we did 10 shows with Kid Rock, and then I, I think he got Zizi. That's crazy. Um, you know, I, I do want to go back. We're, we're wrapping up, cool, but I did want to go back and just talk more about the band's influence on the hip-hop generation and the artists who sampled your music. So I'd love if we could cue up the artist Mace and feel so good and listen to how he interpolated and sampled Cool in the Gang. You ready, Mace? Party people in the place to be. Uh-huh. It's about that time for us to yeah, what you know about going out? Head west, red legs, TVs, all up in the headrest. Try and live it up, ride jewel, bigger truck, peace all glittered up. Stick a kid, nigga, what? Jig with a cut, sip Chris, spit it up. Hoes ride, get your nut till I can't get it up. I'm a big man, get this man room. I done hit everything from Cancun to Grand Tune. And now, before we talk about that, let's go into Will Smith, Jazzy Jeff, and the Fresh Prince with Summertime. Drums, please. All right, and one more. We're going to go three for three. A little Pump It Up by Joe Budden. The legacy of the band that lives on in the music, every day you're hearing new songs that are interpolating, covering, sampling the Cool and the Gang's music. It's got to be an amazing living testament to the legacy that you, your brother, and your friends made. Yeah, yeah, yes it is. Especially during the uh, 70s, I think a lot of the hip-hop world, hip-hop bands, because we didn't have a lot of lead singing on that, and it was just the raw tracks of drums and guitars, like uh, there was a lot of sampling on the song NT, and that was George playing the drums at the time. A lot of sampling of that, and you know, so I think that opened up the door for, for people to get is actually a sample because uh, they can just grab from the tracks and there's no vocals in the way. NT is a classic Cool in the Gang instrumental that's been sampled by Nas, it's been sampled by NWA, it's been sampled by Q-Tip, and the list goes on and on. So 
the legacy continues, but not only in the music, but the legacy continues with the charitable work that you and the foundations that you're associated with are performing every day as well. I know your wife, Sakina, died two years ago. She had created the Cool Kids Foundation, which encourages children to experience the arts. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Cool Kids Foundation? Yeah, that was something that um, she wanted to do in terms of bringing music back and, and to the schools. And she came up with this idea with the, the Cool Kids Foundation. I started to work with her even more so before she passed. And we did a tour called It's Cool to Stay in School. And this was backed by Cherry Coke. And we did about 42 cities. And in order for the kids to come to the concert, we had to do a meet and greet with them. And they had to have good grades, good, good attendance, good academics, et cetera, et cetera. But what happened was at Oklahoma City, a group of young guys came to us and said, no, we're doing well. No, we do good in school. We want to sing something for you. So they started, they sung three of the original uh, acapella songs. And so my, my uh, cousin, who saw also still managed cool in the game, sent it to his brother, Royal. And wow. that group became Color Me Bad. So that was from the It's Cool to Stay in School program. Color Me Bad was discovered. That's amazing. That was amazing. And so that was her whole thing, you know. And then we went on to do Cool Kids Foundation. Before she passed, she had set up another company called Dream Stars. And these young artists want to be stars and dreaming to be stars. And we, we ended up having about two or three groups uh, under, under that banner, too, called Dream Stars. And most recently, I did a fundraiser. O.J. Anderson, he has a big foundation in Jersey, and we're looking to do some more here in Florida, you know, right. uh, with fundraising. And, for the and tell kids. everybody about Le Cool Champagne, Cole. Well, quick story there. I'm touring in Europe and France. The promoter, he comes up to me, he said, listen, I'm doing um, champagne with the late Barry White, or the Barry White lookalike, and also one of the Bee Gees. He said, well, how would you like to, uh, on your tour, because we have about 20 shows in France, that we sell the champagne. I said, well, I don't know if my fans going to want to have buy a bottle of champagne. Uh, they want T-shirts and caps and stuff like that. But what I would like to do, I want to get on the shelves. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, I want to get on the shelves. <laughs> so I came up with this idea, with this name called La Coupe Champagne. L-E-K-O-O-L champagne. And we ended up cutting a deal with the Bertsville family and Rims. Champagne, you have to consider champagne and Rims. Because I wanted the champagne to come out of the champagne region. And then circle back into America called Le Cool Champagne. And that's where we are. It's a grand coup. And I didn't know nothing about the levels of champagne and the Pinot Noir <laughs> and the Chardonnay. I just, yeah, give me a drink, man. <laughs> but now, you know, I, I learned history of champagnes and the, the families, the Dom Renards, and the, the whole thing about the monks and uh, the whole history of champagne. So where can people find Le Cool Champagne, Cole? We're in uh, Fourth State in Jersey. Um, I just showed this that way. Georgia, Savannah Distribution. We're also looking at Heidelberg distribution out of Ohio, Kentucky. And then we just signed the company called Tuscany. The thing about champagne, <laughs> each state, you have to cut a deal. It's a class. Now they have a record. So you got 50 <laughs> you deals know, to cut. a record go across the country. <laughs> so tell us about the future plans for Cool and the Gang. You have a new album coming? Yeah, we're working on um, a new album. We have a single now, if you go up on YouTube called Pursuit of Happiness. My brother wrote that song along with uh, Walter Anderson, who's a new kid on the block, been in the block for 10 years. And it's about what's going on in the world. Before he passed, he was saying, I was wondering why, why Pursuit of Happiness, because it also has a tagline that says World Peace. I started calling the song World Peace. We said, no, Pursuit of Happiness. So when Biden was nominated, but the song that my brother wrote also, Celebration, he spoke about for the pursuit of happiness and perfect union. So my brother had already had in his head pursuit of happiness. 
in perfect union. So our single is now Pursuit of Happiness. So we can look for that sometime this year? Oh, the single is on YouTube now. It was a small video. But the album, we're looking to come out with in March. Well, this was an absolute pleasure, Cole. It was an honor to be able to talk to you and a privilege. And thank you so much for, you know, the memories and the music and all the amazing songs from Cool in the Game. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot to Robert Cool Bell for diving deep with us into Cool and the Gang's catalog and their rich history and permanent place in popular culture. I highly recommend exploring their albums from the beginning in chronological order so you can hear the progression of their music. This band is so much more than just their biggest hits. Visit them at coolinthegang.com to keep up with all they've got going on and pick up some of Robert's Le Cool champagne while you're at it. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.